Well, you know, when you think of Albuquerque, two of the dominant industries here are, of course, uh, Intel in Rio Rancho and the government, such as uh, Kirtland Air Force Base. But wouldn't it be something if we found out when um, everything is unveiled that a a little-known industry here that kind of runs under the radar called Hosanna Ministries is having uh, more impact than either of those. And that could be the case. Joining me tonight is the director of uh, Hosanna, Morgan uh, Jackson, and we have two guests. I'll allow him to introduce for us tonight. Thank you. This is Johan, and this is Michael from Suriname. There, It's a part of the Caribbean, although it's located on South American coast. Well, welcome. Welcome, guys. And they are here for a, a very important and intriguing reason, and I'll allow uh, Michael to tell us about it. Well, we are here to record the Bible into audio form, dramatized, and especially for the literates and the people who can't read and the poor people. And you've come here to oversee that production. Uh, the actual recording is done on site, whether it be in Central America or on the islands. You have some very uh, interesting locations you're going to soon, such as uh, the island of St. Lucia and uh, Haiti. Is that correct? That's correct. Morgan, uh, what is your involvement in this? Well, we oversee Faith Comes by Hearing Hosanna Ministries, which is located in Albuquerque, has 12 what we call recording service centers located around the world. And Johan and Michael serve as one of those, and they will do recordings throughout all of the Caribbean. So we've recorded to date 147 languages where we have the whole New Testament recorded and many or some of them portions of the Old Testament. And so they're one of the teams. They've come to upgrade their equipment and get new training. So give us an overview of what happens at Hosanna. I've taken the tour there, of course, but give, give the folks kind of a quick overview. Well, what we do at Hosanna is we record the Bible on cassette so that the 60% of the world who are poor and illiterate living in oral cultures can hear Scripture in their own mother tongue. What most of us don't realize is there's a famine in the world for God's Word. We have eight Bibles in our house, but what we don't realize is that most people don't have any Scripture and can't read it even if they have it. So what we do is we record it, and then because these people live in oral cultures, we put one New Testament on cassette in every church or every village. And then the whole church or village will gather around, sit around that one New Testament, and they will listen to it for oftentimes hours. And after the listening is done, then the questions start coming. Why did Jesus cast the demons out of those pigs? Didn't he know? What? I thought he was a good God. Didn't he know they were going to die? That's our whole economy, 2,000 pigs. And they'll argue and discuss for, you know, we're thinking of deviled ham and they're, this is serious business, you know. If we invite Jesus into our village, will he destroy our whole economy? And they'll discuss it for 20 minutes, 30 minutes, and then the elders will come out and they'll say, we believe the reason Jesus did this is because we have people like this in our community and we don't even think they're worth one pig. We would rather they died than one of our pigs. So Jesus was trying to show us the value of one man's soul. And so in oral communities, one New Testament, our vision and goal is to allow every single person to hear God's word in their own mother tongue. And Morgan, it, uh, amen. 
I thought it was really intriguing. We were talking earlier that they do dramatized versions of the Bible as well as just audio recordings of it, but that in some of the cultures you can't find 25 literate people to actually read the Bible. Isn't that correct? That's right. I think Michael might want to mention that. I mean, we think that when we're done with the translation that everybody can now read the Scriptures. But as we begin to record the Scriptures, oftentimes we don't even find 20 or 10 people that can read scriptures well enough. And Michael and Johan get to experience that. You want to make a comment? Let's on hear that? from Michael. Michael, what, what are you up to these days? Well, it is difficult. People can, they can speak their own language very well, but they can't read the language. And if they can't read, it's very difficult to find 25. They give you 25 people to read, but still, they are, in their eyes, they are the best. But when we have to read, we find out that they are very worse because they can't read. And that's the hardest part. Right. And, Johan, what part do you play in this process? Uh, about that? <laughs> how, are you, how are you involved? Uh, I'm doing the technical part. So you're the, you'd be the engineer then? Yeah, I'm the engineer. <laughs> <Good>. <laughs> Um, Morgan, let's go back to uh, what takes place physically over at, at Hosanna because it, it's fascinating to realize that uh, taking the Bible to uh, cultures where there, there isn't a communication network, where there isn't a system of, uh, of literacy, of education, is a remarkable challenge. And how do you face that? Well, at Hosanna, we actually produce the New Testaments on cassette for most of the places. In India, in Brazil, and in Russia, we have production facilities there. We, use, we produce about 10 million cassettes and CDs here in Albuquerque. And what we do is we network with Wycliffe Bible Translators and Bible Societies. The Bible Societies actually translate all the languages of over a million speakers. So they have about 700 languages. Wycliffe translates everything under a million speakers. And they have about 600 languages they've, that they've translated. Once they've translated it, then it comes to us. They've spent 35 years oftentimes translating the New Testament. And so we can't do anything until they've done that sacrifice. Then once they've done, then we send a team in like Michael and Johan. They'll go into the country. They'll be there for six weeks to record it. It takes about six weeks to do the actual recording of 24 hours. And then they'll come out and they'll spend a year editing, mixing, putting sound effects and music. Now, Chip, the reason we do drama is most of us don't realize that in the world, most people live in what we call oral communities. And what that means is they don't have a linear thought process. You and I have been trained through school to think logically, and so we have a linear thinking. They don't do that. When they hear something, it forms a picture in their mind. And so it needs to be story told or drama. If you just simply read the scriptures, they, they can't understand it. It's a linear thought process. But if you dramatize it or you do a storytelling, it allows them to actually enter the story. And that's one of the most amazing things is to sit under a tree in Africa or Suriname and watch 200 people sit. Listen with such intensity that you... I mean, you can hear the leaves rustle as they join the story. And as soon as it's done, their immediate reaction is, ah, God speaks Kabye. Ah, God understands my language. Ah, 
We don't have to have a translator to talk to God. God can address me directly. You see, they always thought that God spoke French or English or Spanish. And so when they hear it in their own mother tongue for the first time, that's when they realize that Jesus Christ speaks their language. And many of them feel that God has forgotten them. They look at the Bible and they'll say, we knew that in that book are the words of life, but we can't read them. And so we thought that God had forgotten us. But when they listen, it just captures their heart. Well, you know, Morgan, Jesus said that the gospel would be preached to the whole world and then the end would come. So I'm reminded that what these fellows and what what you're doing is so crucial to the spiritual effort that we're uh, supposed to be about. And by the way, these gentlemen speak uh, four and five languages respectively. And uh, they're they're very, very uh, talented as far as that goes. And... I also, you, perhaps you even heard your kids, if you have children in our church here on Sundays, they were leading worship at all, uh, all four services. So if your kids came home dancing and singing in different languages, this is why. <laughs> Would you uh, pray for us, Morgan, and just uh, yeah. pray for the effort that's going on, please? Amen. Lord, we just want to lift up to you the, the needs of the world. Lord, we want to remind you of your children, those who cannot read, that live right now in darkness, waiting to hear your scripture. And, Father, we ask that you would bring your word to them. Father, you say that in the last days there would be a famine, but it would not be of bread and water, but it would be a famine for the hearing of God's word. Lord, we ask that as people stagger looking, that they would soon be able to find and hear your word in their own mother tongue. We thank you for Calvary Chapel and the support they've been. ask that you bless this church. And we ask that you bless Johan and Michael's efforts to reach all of the Caribbean with your word. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. 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 Thanks, guys. that money makes the world go round. That is not true. It just seems that way because many people will do just about anything for money. But what about making investments now for the eternal future? Did you know that even today the Great Pyramid of Giza is visible from the moon? And that this structure, like other pyramids, was built as a monument to the royal families of Egypt. Pyramids were designed as a storehouse of riches for the pharaohs to enjoy in the afterlife. Even for pharaohs, death at last arrived. Egyptians believed that when their king passed on, he joined the great god Ray to endlessly carry the sun across the sky in a celestial boat. To make sure the pharaohs had a craft at their disposal for this important journey, boats such as this were sometimes buried near the royal tombs. Well, nice idea, but is there a more practical way to prepare for the next life? We're loose on the streets to see whether people believe it's true that when you die, you can't take it with you. Do you think that you can um, live in a way that's investing in, in eternity? 
You have an interesting question. I don't know if you mean physically or spiritually. How about either either or? Yes, you can you can uh, invest in yourself spiritually. How so? I believe that how you how you live your life in combination between your mind, your body, and your soul will affect what happens to you after you die, as well as how you might come back. I do believe in reincarnation. Just wondering if you believe that you can take things with you after you die. Absolutely not. There's no question about it. I just. I just had a conversation with a friend of mine named Paul for lunch, specifically talking about money and about the importance that we place on it. And really it means nothing because we take nothing with us and a lot of times we put an emphasis on things that we shouldn't. So nothing that you take um, in life you can take with you after you die? Not in money, money. in your values and in your character. Yeah, I think baseball go with you. Okay. Any, any sort of way you can live your life to invest in eternity? Yeah, you can live your life for Jesus Christ and invest in your eternal treasure through through Christ. Yeah, that's the only way. Uh, there's nothing nothing you can take here. Nothing uh, on this earth you can take with you. Absolutely not. But if you give your life to Jesus Christ and live for Him, then you can take treasures in heaven. You know what I'm saying? Tonight, we will turn to the words of Jesus to consider what is the currency of God's eternal kingdom. Because we want to be wise about storing up treasure in heaven so we can avoid becoming entangled in the temporary riches of this world. Now let's turn to Matthew chapter 6 and study verses 19 through 21, line on line. All right. Open your Bible to Matthew chapter 6. We'll begin tonight in verse 19 where Jesus said, Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth, where moth and rust can corrupt, where thieves break through and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust does corrupt, and where thieves do not break into steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Well, the longest recorded Monopoly game in human history, took 70 days to play. That's some 1,600 hours. And I'm sure the participants took that game very seriously for that span of time. Nonetheless, when the game was through, the little men went back in the box, and the Monopoly funny money went back to the bank, and everybody went home. Despite how intense the rivalry and the competition may have been. So I want to draw a parallel between a, a game of Monopoly and our, our monetary system here in the world today because there are some similarities. Well, there are differences as well, but uh, we all take the economic system pretty seriously. It's unfortunate, but in many cases, there is very little a person won't do to receive money. It is a very high priority on the list of many, many people. And yet, that system is temporary. It is transitory. And the topic we had in our video was, can you take it with you? And if the answer was an absolute no, if nothing you did on earth impacted the afterlife, it would be easy. You just come to Christ, have faith, get saved, and wait for that day of heaven. But the Bible does reveal that our behavior on earth has an effect on our eternal state. 
It's not precisely clear how that equation works, but it's important to note that we are told there is a relationship, there is an impact between how we are now and how we'll be then. So what can we take with us? Um, what will heaven be like? When we consider heaven, it's like a travel, a destination to an exotic, far location, uh, much like preparing for a very elaborate and extensive vacation. And the Bible has things to say about heaven. It's kind of frustrating. It's not absolutely by any means exhaustive, but there's enough. Um, it seems some of the writers themselves who had visions of heaven, whether in the body or out of the body, we cannot tell, but even they seemed a bit confused by it. You read Ezekiel, and you get kind of the feeling that he's saying, okay, I'm going to write this down, but I have no idea what it means. And that's what kind of happens to us by reading about the wheels within wheels and spinning this and all that, but it's a, it's a vision of heaven. Uh, when you get to uh, John, he's more technic technical, more descriptive, more elaborate in how he defines heaven. When you find Paul's relationship to heaven, he kind of steps out of the batter's box and says, you know what, it'd be illegal for human language to describe what I saw in heaven. Isaiah, on the other hand, gives us a fairly accurate description and fairly uh, coherent one as well. He says, I saw worship, I saw angels, I saw God himself upon the throne. And so, as we're doing tonight, the best thing you can do is get the most credible information. Now, if you were considering a vacation to the Caribbean, to South America, and you wanted to prepare for it and find your destination and all the things about the resort, you might go on the Internet, you might request brochures, you might see a travel agent. But what would be the very most, the best thing, the most reliable thing you could do to find out the details about your intended resort. Because you don't want to arrive somewhere and find out that the brochures were shot 20 years ago and the rooms smell like mildew and the, the, the beach is all polluted and, and the, the waiters have an attitude. So you want to find somebody who has been to that place. So we look to what? The words of Jesus. The one who came from heaven, who wasn't just visiting as Ezekiel and Isaiah and Paul were, who is home at heaven. And so tonight we have before us the words of Jesus, counsel, advice, wisdom, and a warning about heaven. And he says, don't lay up your treasure on earth. Lay up your treasure in heaven. So we ought to take that advice to heart. Let's imagine heaven for a moment. And to do that, we have to, because we are so sensually bound, uh, take into consideration our language, our experience, our sensual perceptions. And we live on just one of many planets, as you know, but it's a wonderful planet. When you think about the extreme and diverse topography, the, the beautiful places to go to Bali and Tahiti and the Swiss Alps and to Alaska and to Hawaii, and it's, it's a wonderful world. It's a gorgeous world, the Grand Canyon and the rivers and the mountains and all the rest. But it's a fallen, doomed, condemned world. And so the very best experience you could ever have in this life is just a, a flash compared to heaven. And so we are, we are told that um, we are to ha be heavenly-minded. But unfortunately, too many people have no earthly idea what heaven is going to be like. Uh, so they therefore see no real reason 
to order their affairs here on earth to prepare them for heaven. And I think that's a mistake. Uh, Many things about heaven will remain mysterious. And I really think God is the author of surprises. I think he likes mysteries. I don't think we invented the uh, surprise birthday party. I think God is the the author of surprises. You know, some people just aren't good at at giving surprises, at giving birthday parties. I remember a few years ago, they were having a party for me, and I was on my way to this mysterious party, and and a friend called and and actually said, "Um, have you been to your surprise party yet? Well, no, but I guess I'm going, you know. But I I think God enjoys surprises. Go to the first part of the Bible and look at the whole interplay with God and Adam. That could have been much easier. Um, Look at the whole thing with the animals. It's almost playful the way God is bringing the animals before Adam to name them. What, did God run out of names after Adam? No, I mean, he, want, he wanted the relationship of Adam being involved in naming. And he brought him, oh, look, Adam, it's a giraffe. And it's, it's almost comical. And the kangaroo and bringing the Adam, animals by Adam. And then came the big surprise. Adam, take a nap. And, and you, you, what wouldn't you pay? What wouldn't you pay to see the look on Adam's face? He's seen all these animals and the livestock and the fowls and the fish. And all that. Oh, you know, wow, woof. And you just imagine what, what he's thinking. God, you have outdone yourself. So I think God enjoys surprises. And I think God enjoyed the look on Adam's face. And what's more, I think he'll enjoy the look on your face when you open your eyes in heaven one minute after you die. I think he's looking forward to that. He's prepared a great surprise. That's what Jesus said. I go to prepare a place for you. Well, he didn't have to say that. He doesn't have to do that. But he's anticipating expectantly that moment when you, who really have very little idea what's in store for you, can only imagine, based on your earthly experiences, what's ahead. It's going to be, wow. And then, wow, and then he'll it'll unfold throughout. The Bible says age-abiding life from eon to eon. God will continually, I think, amaze us, startle us. And, oh, look at this. And a whole new world unveils. Look at look what you can do. And it goes on and on and on. That's the, God is endlessly creative. I believe that uh, awaits us. But we are told certain things about the materials, the size of heaven, The occupations we'll have in heaven, uh, the new order of reality we'll enjoy in heaven. For example, um, according to Revelation, according to John's technical description, uh, heaven will be multidimensional. The new Jerusalem coming down from heaven alone, just the new Jerusalem, will be a cube, some 1,500 miles square. To give you some perspective on the size of just the city of New Jerusalem, uh, each of those stories in, in the cube, and there will be 400,000 of those stories, by the way, uh, will be about half the size of this continent. Furthermore, um, the New Jerusalem covers a surface square footage, or mileage rather, of 2.25 million miles. For some perspective, London covers 621 square miles. Do the math, do the ratios. Just the New Jerusalem can comfortably house 100 billion people. So 
feel free to evangelize. Don't, don't feel held back at all. There's going to be crowded in heaven. There'll be, uh, there'll be plenty of room. Well, the materials in heaven were told about too. Uh, the foundation stones alone, they're roughly parallel, by the way, to the stones on the high priest, the breastplate of the high priest described in the Old Testament. But um, they're about 72 feet high. You know, we, we pay thousands for a carat, a little chip of precious stones. These uh, diamonds and emeralds and jewels are some 72 feet high, and they just hold up the walls outside of Jerusalem. And then here's something ironic. Uh, we are crazy about gold. Just we're gold mad. Our, our, our culture is so based on gold throughout the ages. Well, the streets in heaven are, are paved with gold. So don't worry about taking your jewelry with you and you know, wearing it when you get raptured. or when you. No, don't worry about it. There'll be plenty of gold in heaven. There won't be any, any weekend radio shows, you know, buy gold in heaven because it'll be like as common as asphalt. And that's God's way of saying to us, I've got it covered. Uh, my, my values are completely different than your values. And what about our occupations in heaven? You know, employment agencies tell us there are some 40,000 different job descriptions uh, in America. And it's amazing. Even with that, so many people are unhappy with their careers. Uh, but nonetheless, it won't be the case in heaven. There won't be a need for angelic unions in heaven. There'll be no work stoppages in heaven, no conflicts between labor and management. Uh, management will rule the day, believe me, in heaven. Uh, but we will have the occupation, first of all, of worship. Isaiah tells us that. That will be a dominant thing. So if you want to warm up and get loose for heaven, learn how to worship. Uh, be involved in worship frequently. We will know worship, certainly, but um, that's not all. Jesus told an intriguing parable about the story of the gifting of stewards, of managers, not owners, but managers. And he said, some will get 15 cities, some will oversee 10 cities, some five. What does that mean? Not exactly clear, but it tells us there is an equation somewhere in the divine economy that is dictated by our faithfulness here on earth. Well, those are the few things we do know about heaven, but the Bible also speaks negatively about things that won't be in heaven. For example, no more pain, no more death, no more suffering, no more toil, no more tears, no more temptation. Can I have an amen? Amen. amen. When we come to the topic of, of treasure in heaven, too often our carnal minds immediately swing to our checkbooks. Oh, I have to give more. Oh, I should tithe more. Oh, I haven't been giving. Uh, that's not the issue. And just to illustrate that, let me leave our text just for a moment. It's so important I want you to see it. Flip over to the next gospel, Luke chapter 16. I just really want to reinforce this point. It, it is crucial because we, uh, we err greatly when we assume that God is moved by our money, that God is in the least bit interested in our money. And here's the point. It's the parable of the unjust steward. And I want to draw your attention to verse 11, where it says, If therefore you have not been faithful in the unrighteous things of this world, who will commit to your trust? And get the next two words. It's so humbling. True riches. Ouch. You see, we consider our money, and we guard our money, and we slave for our money. We consider that to be the epitome of wealth. But in God's system, it doesn't even qualify for true riches. It's just a test. It's just kindergarten. 
And he says, well, take care of this, and then maybe I'll give you something important. And we so have that backwards. And we take for granted spiritual opportunity, and we covet material wealth. And that is the exact inverse of God's value system. Well, back to our text, because it says very clearly here, for that reason, and if it, the real rendering of, of verse um, 19 would, would be, don't treasure your treasures. Don't become entangled with your treasure. Don't let it become uh, a part of you. Keep a light touch. Now, God understands we need money. And he wants us to have opportunities to enjoy, have recreation, and and to have security. But he's saying don't treasure those things. Uh, It's reinforced later in the Bible where it says the kingdom of God, listen, emphatically is not food or drink or stuff. That is not the things of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is peace, love, and joy, and righteousness in the Holy Spirit. Those are the the currencies, the denominations of God's kingdom. So we need some um, clarifying scriptures. We need to realize God's on a whole different wavelength than we are, a whole different system. Recognize God has never had even a nanosecond of lack, ever. Never has, never could, never will. Never had an anxious moment, never wondered if a project was going to be completed, never had a negative thought. There's no flaw, absolute moral perfection, total sovereign power. Now, we toss about these theological terms in our classrooms and our notebooks, but let them sink in. God is completely in control of every atom that ever was or ever will be. And what you have on your plate today is there for a God-ordained specific reason. And there is no coincidence. It's not a happenstance. It's not a mistake. It's not something just happened to happen. It's because God has placed it before you. And if you take it seriously, manage it well, govern it as it should be, the Lord's very gift to you, you'll be rewarded for it as a faithful servant. And then God will begin to open in more doors for you as you take the opportunity to step through them faithfully. Well, what are the things we can take to heaven? What will be there when we get there? It's such an important question, don't you think? What can we send ahead? You see, we have been raised on the buy now, a pay later plan. That's the American way. But we need to transition. Listen, we need to transition to the serve now, enjoy after plan. That's God's way that we invest now in his kingdom, and then he says, now look at this. Look what you sent ahead. And what are the treasures of God's kingdom? Exodus 19.5 says, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me. It's God's people. They are the treasure of the kingdom. It's not things and materials or power or even authority. His people are his primary treasure. And we all know, for example, that God values his word even above his name. His word will be in heaven. And we know that he worship, he, he, he values a, a contrite heart. Uh, the only man-made thing in heaven we've, we've heard is are the scars that will be on the hands and feet inside of Jesus. But we know that God and his throne will be the 
axis that all of heaven will rotate around. There'll be angels, lots of them. There'll be worship, we've already seen that. But what will be the most abundant feature of heaven? Well, I submit to you, it'll be people. Every tribe, every tongue, every nation. Millions and billions throughout the ages that God has, has reached in ways we can't even imagine. There'll be people everywhere. Glorified, perfected, redeemed people. So if you don't like people now, you better get used to them. There'll be lots of them around. They'll be different, but they'll be people. The currency, the currency of God's kingdom is contrasted by the economy of hell. Because hell has an economy. Hell has a system. And it's the same system that Satan whispers in your ear that he whispered in Eve's ear. It's the you-can-have-it-now system. It's the don't worry about it. It won't matter. Get it now. Enjoy it now. I'll pay for it later, Eve. And that is the philosophy of hell. We need to utterly reject that philosophy. We need to thoroughly understand that we aren't to live for today and go merrily about our way. Now, the world system is built around temporary riches. It's about replenishable things. It's about discretionary income. It's about obligating you to time and resources so you, you aren't free to use them for the benefit of God's kingdom. Uh, wealth is not only temporary. Look at our text tonight. Wealth deteriorates and is subject to violent intervention. In other words, wealth decays and people take it. And that bothers us. Because what happens when you get something that's nice? Especially if you waited for it. And maybe you even saved for it. And then what's the first thing you do? You begin to worry about it. Now, where did I put it? How am I going to keep it? I have to guard it. Someone might take it. It might get broken. And so you don't really get to always enjoy the things that are, are most special to you. That's what he's saying here. Moss and rust doth corrupt. And it's so true. That's why we find the scene in Revelation when Babylon and all the, the world is, is coming to an end. What are people doing? Standing around and weeping. Not for the people, for the system. They're weeping over the stuff. They're so tied into it that when it begins to crumble, they don't know how to deal with it. Now, we all know horrific things happened on September 11th. Let me say, that is mild in comparison to what we read about in Revelation. So if you're locked into the way this world works, you're in for heartbreak. You're in for deep and abiding grief. Over the average work life of 25 to 64 years of an American adult, uh, with a high school education, you'll earn $1.2 million. With a bachelor's degree, $2.1 million, and, and so on, throughout the very discipline, various disciplines. The problem is, of course, they don't give that to you when you start. It'd be nice if it was like Monopoly, where they issued you the money, and then you get to spend it throughout your life and earn it. It doesn't quite work that way. Every two weeks, you have to kind of get a chunk of it. And eventually, you look back and go, where did that million dollars go? You know. But the point being that um, God's kingdom doesn't work that way either, you see. We aren't issued our reward at the beginning. We are given the promise. We are given the way to work our way through and process the Christian walk, as we are told. But we are called to be faithful day by day, moment by moment, and to walk in faith that God will reward us, that he'll be a debtor uh, to no man. So 
we may live paycheck to paycheck, or you may be able to be wealthy and be able to acquire funds and accumulate goods. Nonetheless, someday, all the pieces go back in the box. All the money goes back to the bank, and you go in the box. <laughs> and, so, and so what happens to you at that point? What, what happens one minute after you die? You thought about that? Just take yourself in your imagination to one minute after you die. I know it's hard to imagine the world going on without you. And you think, oh, it's all going to crumble and, and my family, um, they will survive. One minute after you die. Just lay still for a minute sometime under the grass. Close your eyes and just imagine daisies coming up around you. What will it be like one minute after you die? What will you care about then? How will your values change? How will the things that seem so crushingly important today just vanish? You know, it happens all the time around here because in the ministry, we meet people in crisis constantly. And we see instantaneous transition of values in hospital rooms, in funeral homes, at bedsides, in counseling appointments, in times of broken marriages, lost children, deteriorating health. People have revolutions in what's important overnight with a phone call, one single phone call, and your entire system turned upside down. And people make incredible promises to God at that point. Why wait for then? Why not plan ahead now and begin adjusting your life so it won't be such a crushing blow because in one form or another, that change is coming to all of us. Eventually, our bodies will betray us. Eventually, the systems will give out either here or there. And so we ought to realize how transitional this time is. We think it's so permanent. But one minute after you die, it's all going to change. And the currency we have in our wallet and our, our checkbooks and in the bank today be meaningless. We see the, the illustration right now over in Iraq. Now, the, the currency in Iraq has dropped 6,000-fold since sanctions have been imposed in the past decade. Before that time, for example, if you had a dinar, which is a, the Iraqi equivalent of a dollar, a dinar was worth $3.3 at one time. Right now, after this deflation has taken place, especially in light of the recent war, um, it takes 2,000 dinars to make one dollar. Let me illustrate. If you were an Iraqi millionaire at that time and had two million of their dollars in the bank, today you'd have the equivalent of one thousand dollars. Now that could irritate you. <laughs> but that is what, ha what happened to the Confederate dollar, the German mark, the Japanese yen, uh, the Roman money, all the rest. What's the value today? How important was it then? We need to keep that perspective in mind. Fortunately, we can have, the Bible says emphatically, we can have treasure in heaven. We can take things with us, but perhaps not how we traditionally think. Because Jesus said in Luke 18.22 to the young, rich, young ruler, you still lack one thing. Sell all that you have, give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. There's a promise from someone who knows, someone who's been there. He is the one who rewards the faithful. 
So what can we take with us? Well, first and foremost, we take ourselves. Paul said we have this treasure in earthen vessels. We take our redeemed natures, our new spirit with us to heaven. That's the primary thing. That's the big thing, getting, getting to heaven, building our house upon that foundation. So it's, that's not the question for Christians. We are going to get to heaven if we've trusted in Christ. Here's the issue. In what condition will we arrive? You see, C.S. Lewis said, every human being is in the process of becoming either something incredibly noble or something beyond redemption. So you are in process today. You are in the refiner's fire. You are being buffed in the jeweler's uh, workshop. Now remember, and this I think is, is key, in 1 Corinthians 13, Paul said when everything passes away, even things of a spiritual nature, faith and prophecy and words of wisdom, when all that passes away, love will remain. So I think that one of the the large denominations in God's currency is love, that love will flow out of his kingdom. If you want practice for heaven, begin loving people. Begin giving yourself away. Begin practicing the process of sacrificing yourself for the benefit of others. Um, We are never more like God than when we love. And we are never more like Satan when we are selfish. Well, here's a reasonable question. How can you identify what your treasure is outside of yourself? Have you ever driven by a field of sunflowers? They're up in the East Mountains and see them all over the world. They're amazing. Huge, beautiful marigold flowers. And what do they what do they do? They literally follow the sun all day long. Their heads actually turn throughout the day and follow the sun. Those sunflowers have their hearts set upon the sun. So what does it mean when Jesus said, where your treasure is, your heart will be also? It means that your heart follows your treasure. So what does it look like to have your heart set upon treasure in heaven? Here are some examples. Uh, We have, we all have this master passion. And here are ways of identifying the treasures in your life. The master passion in your life will be identified by the deep driving desire that you have concerning this issue. It's on your mind when you wake up in the morning. It dominates your your, your thought life. It um, obligates you to expenses of, of resource and time and energy. It stimulates your senses. It gets you excited. It's beyond the mundane. It's something you are really sold into. That's your treasure. And you can, you can do that quick quiz for yourself and find out what is your heart set upon. Now, for some people, it is, in fact, the things of God's kingdom. We heard tonight about the translation of the Bible, get your heart started. You realize this is frontline activity. This is what the church ought to be about. It's such a valuable investment in the kingdom. It's a good things. Praying for missionaries. Giving yourself to these things. Paul said, give yourself fully, completely to these things. On the other hand, there are those who have their hearts set upon adventure. 
And man can do incredible things when his heart is set upon something. Climbing Mount Everest, doing extreme adventure, breaking records of athletics. But other people have their hearts set upon luxury, other upon more mundane pursuits, a simple game of golf, a simple investment, another person. They set their heart upon that person. They have to have that person. That's what it looks like when it's brought down to earth level. Jesus is recommending to us, raise your sights. Fix them firmly on heaven. Accept no substitutes, no counterfeits. And be thoroughly assured you will not be disappointed in that day. John said, do all that you can to assure that you have an abundant entry into heaven. I'll leave it to you to consider what that means and the implications of it. But all those investments, all those pursuits on earth, they aren't bad things necessarily. But what will they matter one minute after you die? How concerned will you be about your golf game at that time? Worth considering. In the story of the wealthy fool, Jesus said, He who lays up treasure for himself is not rich towards God. Interesting phrase, isn't it? He who lays up treasure for himself is not rich towards God. What does it mean then to be rich towards God? Well, first of all, before we can fully focus on preparing for eternal life, we need to enjoy, don't you think, a a measure of freedom from the tyranny of this current world. So here's a useful exercise. Go home tonight and take out a, a dollar bill. You stare George right in the eye and say, George, you are not the boss of me. So you, uh, you free yourself up because Jesus said you cannot serve two masters. You love the one and hate the other. We get this suggestion from Paul to his young protege, Timothy. He said, Timothy, do good. They that are rich in good works, who are ready to give, listen now, willing to share, are storing up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come that they may lay hold on eternal life. Isn't that neat? Storing up for themselves a good foundation. Well, here are some things that if you put into practice on a regular basis, you'll never regret. And then I want to give you a list of things that if they are present in your life chronically, I suggest you will regret them. First of all, you'll never regret giving anonymously to the poor. The Bible says, he that gives to the needy lends to the Lord. You'll never regret a moment of prayer. One minute after you die, you'll never regret a meal you fasted on the behalf of a missionary or a suffering child. One minute after you die, you'll not regret any person you told about the gospel of Jesus Christ. And one minute after you die, you'll never regret a shred of resource, energy, or activity that you concretely, anonymously contributed to God's kingdom. You'll never regret that. We need to adopt an orderly plan for making regular contributions into God's kingdom. Remember uh, the commendation of Jesus to the unjust servant. 
Be wise according to the resources you have. Now, there is a place for giving to God and just sowing seed and, and, and trusting it will bring back good fruit. But there's also a place for wisdom. God expects you to use your faculties, your energies, your abilities, your talents for his kingdom. There's a parable where God says, I expect the return on my investment. And what has he invested in you? A marvelous creation, incredible liberty in this country, access to every kind of medium, uh, the knowledge of the need in the world. And I anticipate that God's going to say, well, what did you do with it? And one, one servant said, well, I buried it. I was afraid. And he said, you are a wicked and unjust servant. The others who invested it and re- received a return on their investment were rewarded and commended. That's the camp we want to land in. So roll up your sleeves, make tangible, concrete, anonymous, regular contributions to God's kingdom. And let me repeat, let me reemphasize, I'm not talking about money. You see, the church has been guilty from time to time of giving the impression you can almost buy God off. Write a check, and now we can do it online. Just make our contribution, give to Compassion, give to GFA. Uh, I'm not talking about antiseptic giving here. I'm not talking about just writing a check once in a while. I'm talking about giving yourself away. You see, when God observed that man had a great and deep and fatal need, he didn't send a miracle, although there were miracles in the Old Testament, miracles that preceded the coming of Christ. When God saw that man was a broken creature beyond redemption without divine intervention. Uh, He didn't send a message. He didn't stand in heaven and shout down, be good, behave yourself. He sent a message. But that wasn't all. He he noticed what we needed. He recognized the, the, the predicament we were in, and he sent a man. Now, the man had a message. The man was surrounded by miracles. But the fact is... Uh, God sent his son. And so he didn't send a check. He didn't send a gift. He sent, he sent Jesus Christ. And I would recommend that we ought to send ourselves and not just sit back. Now, there's a place for staying with the stuff. Everybody's not called to frontline activity. I recognize that. But everybody should do themselves a favor, do the church a favor, and make a regular contribution of, uh, of energy and, and resource to the kingdom of heaven. Here's a, here's a quick quiz about things you will regret if they are constantly present in your life. You see, it's possible, as we see in our, in our text tonight, to have our things stolen. And so you can make, if you follow the analogy with me, you can make a deposit into the wrong account spiritually. You can do the right things the wrong way. Jesus said, even if you're doing spiritual things, fasting, praying, giving, if you're doing them to be noticed by men, enjoy that reward. That's going to be it, you see. And so the question is this. Who are you trying to impress with your service? Who do you want to notice what you're giving? If it's anybody, anybody but God himself, you're making a deposit into your own account, and you can't take it with you. But if you're serving anonymously, if you're giving generously, if you're loving luxuriously and extravagantly, God will take note. Jesus said, don't let your one hand know what your other hand is doing. That's how deceptive your heart is. 
because we want to kind of gradually be noticed. You know, we, there's speculation from time to time in, the, in church communities about what would happen in the church if the government took away the tax deduction for charitable giving. And so I sure don't want the government taking any more of our income. But it, it, it toy with the idea of it wouldn't be all that bad at one level because then people who gave would be giving only and purely for the, the right reason, the proper motive. Now, we don't want the government getting a hold of this tape and taking it any further, <laughs> but the point being, I, I think you understand. So who are you trying to impress? Whose image are you trying to enhance? Whose reputation are you trying to raise by what you give and what you do? We, the Bible cautions us to frequently examine our motives. James says, even do it about why you pray. Because you pray and you ask amiss. Wrong motive. So we have to continually be in the process of reexamining our motives. Why are we doing this? Because you can begin a good work, fall away from your first love, and that work becomes a grind. And it's no longer a light burden. It becomes this heavy thing upon that you're doing, that God has placed in you, just can't get rid of it. That's not serving the Lord. His yoke is easy. His burden is light. That is a permanent job description of Christian service. So the question remains, who are we trying to impress? We ought to be trying to impress heaven itself. When God wanted to address your deepest need, he did send Jesus Christ. And he also puts needs in front of you that he expects you to be making an effort to solve problems you have the ability to resolve, and it's a question of your free moral will. But we must remember, we can do the right thing for the wrong reason. Paul said, I can even give my body to be burned, the ultimate extreme sacrifice. But if I don't do it with the currency of love, it's empty. It's vanity. It's of no value. So love is a predominant thing that needs to color everything that we do. You know, money is, I'm sure you'll agree, an amazingly powerful tool. Just a little piece of green colored paper. You can walk up to somebody, flash it in front of them, and they'll do amazing things for you. Because we all agree on the value of that paper. It could be monopoly money for all we know. It could be counterfeit. The people will treat you differently. They'll give you things. They'll serve you. They'll park your car. Money is a powerful tool. And yet, it's not omnipotent. It's limited. It can uh, buy a house. doesn't make it a home. It can buy attention. doesn't buy respect. It, it can take you anywhere, but still leave you nowhere. But that's not how God's currency works. God's currency of love and, and of, of power. Imagine just one of the powers God has given to his church. Remember the scene? Peter's there. Peter. Peter, here are the keys to the kingdom. Now, Peter's got to be thinking, wow, how do you work this thing? I got the keys to the kingdom. Well, just one of the keys I would submit to you is the power to forgive the power to be forgiven, but then the power to forgive. You know, the world lacks that power. They walk around with bitter grudges. 
They'll go through a whole lifetime and not speak to a family member because of something that happened 20, 30 years ago. They might forget the offense and remember the grudge. The power to forgive. We've been given that, not just once, not just 70 times 7. We have an infinite power to walk in liberty. We don't have to be held in bondage to offenses and bitterness and the harsh, hard-hearted attitudes of unforgiveness. What a wonderful gift God has given to us with just the power to forgive one of the keys to the kingdom. So think about things God has entrusted to you. Whatever God puts before you tomorrow, I'd like you to consider it. It's all unique. It's all different for each of us in this room tonight or listening by radio. But know this. Whatever is in front of you tomorrow morning is from the Lord, and you ought to fall in love with it. You ought to recognize it as a gift from heaven. Now, you might be a receptionist, and you have a phone in front of you. You ought to fall in love with that phone. That should be the best-loved phone on the face of the earth. You might be in sanitation, and you have garbage in front of you. This should be the most loved garbage known to man. Whatever God brings your way, take it seriously. Fall in love with it. For now, it's your calling. And don't be victim to the grass is greener mentality that so infects our world. Bloom literally where you're planted. And you'll see God do remarkable things. Well, here's a closing question. Which system rules your life tonight? What really pushes your buttons? What really causes you sleepless nights? I think if we were all honest, we'd probably spend too few nights praying for lost souls, concerned about unreached people groups, thinking about the deprivation that missionaries endure. I think if we were honest, that might be a rare night indeed. Maybe it ought to be more common. Maybe we spend too much time doing math in our head, figuring out ways to get from here to there and buy this and that. What will those things matter to you? one minute after you die. Which system really, truly are you entrenched in? The temporary, transitory, illusionary system of this world or the permanent, glorious, wonderful kingdom of our God? And Jesus promised us that if we take these simple steps and invest in his kingdom, we will not regret it. Malachi 3.16 tells us much the same thing. He said, don't be be caught up with the so-called almighty dollar. Isn't that a great term, the almighty dollar? No. Be caught up with the one who is almighty. Malachi 3.16 tells of the fact that God has condescended to keep a book of remembrance about those who think upon his name. Isn't that something? It's not for the sake of his memory, because he can't remember. It's to remind you that he never forgets. He says, I will keep a book of remembrance of all those who meditate upon my name. And then the day will come when I'll go to earth and scoop up harvest my jewels. That's you. Not just you. That's the ones we reach. Not just the ones that you tell, the ones that these gentlemen tell and that hear the word through their efforts and, and just the wonderful many layers, the conspiracy of the mustard seed that God has laid out in his kingdom. We ought to be frequently about this. We ought to be deeply concerned. 
I've got to say in closing a, a parting thought. If these things don't scratch the surface of your heart, if they literally are a ho-hum topic to you, if worldwide evangelism and the Great Commission and reaching the world for Christ are all so many religious buzzwords, you ought to take a long walk with your father and ask him to give you his heart. I can't do that. No teacher can. But God can do that. God can change our heart, help us to adopt his economy, his value system. I'm afraid to tell you that very often his priorities vary differently and drastically from our priorities because his treasure is his people. And we need to be investing in the very same way. Now, I've left this for last, but I've taken the assumption that most here tonight have placed Christ at the cornerstone of their life, Um, that you have given yourself to him, accepted his forgiveness, and begun to enjoy that. However, it's possible that, that that is not the case. So I want to make it very clear. None of this applies to you if you haven't accepted Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. If he is not the foundation of your life, you can't begin to build an eternal home. And that's what we're about, building a home that will last against the storm that is surely coming against this world. So a word of invitation to anyone who is unsure, who thinks, well, all those things sound interesting, but I'm not even certain I'll be in heaven. I want to let you know that you can be certain you'll be in heaven. We take Internet questions every week, and I save just one for our close tonight. It's a very short question. It just says, is there any sin that God cannot forgive? And the short hand answer is yes. There's a sin God cannot forgive. But it's not what you might think. It's not any action overtly of deep evil or darkness. It's the consistent, ultimate rejection. Listen, the rejection of what Jesus did on the cross. Uh, We call it the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit that kind of cloaks its true nature. What it really means is calling the Holy Spirit a liar when he said, Jesus came to save you. And you resist and reject his advice to accept Christ. And that is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. It is the only sin God cannot forgive. Any other sin, if we repent, if we accept his forgiveness, we are fully cleansed. Though our sins, the Bible said, are as scarlet, God will make them as white as snow. Isn't that glorious? Let's close with prayer. Lord, tonight how grateful we are that every sin can be forgiven. How thankful we should be that nothing will separate us from you if we come to the foot of Calvary. Lord, once we've done that, help us to recognize that accepting your love is the first step and sharing it the second. I want to pray for anybody here tonight who is in need of installing Jesus as Lord and Savior of their life. I pray in the the quiet counsel of your own heart you would do that just now. And for those, Lord, who are in your family of faith, I pray they would carefully consider, thoughtfully inventory their life and be certain they are obligated to no other king but you 
to no other system than the economy of heaven. And we thank you for that opportunity.